Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Tenny Pages here on River Radio. We've got the first look at Henley Literary Festival. It's summertime reading from the little bookshop in Cookham. And we're looking at the earth in books. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Thank you very much to Deborah for a fabulous My Life, My Way today. And uh, good morning, Julian. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Heather, in the pink. And how are you? Excellent. Well, I've had a very busy week, actually, which I'll be telling you about later. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. I'm all gripped. I I know. You should be. You should be. And I don't know if you've been listening to the programme, to Deborah's programme, My Life, My Way. Yes, I thought it was great. It was fabulous. And I've got to say that Gerald Ratner has written a book. So if you do read, if you haven't listened to the programme, listen again. You can get it on... um, on listen listen back on our website but you can also read about Gerald Ratner on Gerald Ratner the rise and fall and rise again which was voted in the top 10 of motivational books oh, uh, when um, when it was published well maybe he might uh, might want to come back and uh, chat to us in the studio oh, about the book specifically possibly that's a very good idea mm, so yes. ev- every week on turning pages we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favorite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list so if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books this is your program Indeed it is. And as usual, we have an hour crammed full of delights for you this week. And starting off by saying that Harriet Reed Ryan will be joining us um, a little later from the Henley Literature Festival. And she's going to be talking about the launch of the programme for this really exciting and really important book festival, which is here in the Thames Valley. Absolutely. We've also got Chantelle Farquhar from the Little Bookshop in Cookham, who'll be joining us for her summertime reading recommendations. And Heather and I will be recommending a book each on the topic of the earth. Yes, that was an interesting topic to choose there. Yes, Um, readers, that's my fault. I'm going through all the elements and the things and (laughs) this is what I came up with, amongst others. Amongst others. And to start the show, as always, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news. So let's start with that quick roundup of some fabulous book stories that we've got today for you all. Yes, indeed. And, and, and to kick off, I think we've got this news item here is, is, is the ultimate how to draw a book um, for young children, it's, which has just been discovered. And it was created by a doting father who just happened to be one of the greatest artists of the 20th century, Pablo Picasso. Now, his granddaughter has discovered the extraordinary collection of sketchbooks which were used by the artist to teach his eldest daughter to draw and colour. Now, apparently, Picasso filled the pages with playful scenes of animals, birds, clowns, acrobats, 
cats, horses and doves. And, and I have to say, they would delight any child um, today as well as, as adults. Now, he created them for his daughter, Maya Ruiz Picasso, when she was aged probably between five and seven. Now, on some pages... Maya herself made impressive attempts to imitate um, the master, her father, and she also graded her father's work by scribbling a number 10 on a circus scene which, uh, to show her approval. Oh, at least she, she got, got the number right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> ah, but we don't know if it was 10 out of what, though, do we? <laughs> Uh, and and he he also drew, and this is why I find this quite amazing, a simple but beautiful eagles in one single movement without raising the pencil from the paper, uh, which was conveying his love of form and, 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 and pure line to her. Now, his granddaughter, um, Diana Vidmeyer Ruiz Picasso, found the works by chance whilst looking through some family material which was in storage. Now, intrigued by all of this, she showed them to her mother, who was now 86, um, for whom memories came flooding back. Now, Picasso died in 1973, but he'd been taught to draw by his own father, who was a professor of drawing. So um, so she said, so that was something natural for him to do um, with Maya, um, which is what his grandfather, uh, granddaughter said. Now, Maya was particularly remembers that during the Second World War, colour pencils and mo- notebooks were in short supply, even though uh, Spain wasn't actually in the in the war itself. But obviously, there was the impact of shortage of goods. And she went on to say, that's probably why my father wrote in my um, exercise books and, and coloured with my pencils. And, and uh, I have fond memories, she, she continued, of those moments when we met up in the kitchen to draw together. It was the only place in the apartment where it was warm. Oh, that's a lovely story, actually. Isn't it, just? Yeah, how fabulous. So the Times newspaper did a review recently of the 10 young creative talents we have in the UK at the moment to look out for. So obviously there's a mix of artists and designers and dancers and theatre. And of course, there was an author. So the novelist was Catriona Ward, and she was chosen for what I feel actually is a very competitive field at the moment. And also I was very pleased to see that the definition of young creative was Catriona's 41. Oh, good. So uh, so obviously I'm still nearly, still nearly young. (laughs) So her first book, Catriona Ward's first book, won a prize in the British, excuse me, British Fantasy Awards with with a horror novel, Raw Blood. Her encore, Little Eve, won the same prize, together with the Shirley Jackson Award, for its outstanding achievement in the literature of psychological suspense and horror. And it's her third novel, called The Last House, which has broken through the genre um, ideas and has been chosen both as Thriller of the Month in The Times and also The Observer. So I think that's a, that's a really good call. It's beautifully written literary thriller and it's got a playful sense of horror and humour with lots of clever twists. So an author to look out for and I think The Last House is a book to try. Mm, sounds very interesting. Now, for, for, for those who like the comic books, comic book abuse is finally over. According to an article in The Times written by Mark Home, um, sorry, I beg your pardon, Mark Horn, Commando, which is the longest running war comic, has turned its fire on jingoism and xenophobia. DC Thomas, who first published the comic book uh, back in 1961, says that the comic hit the heights back in the 1970s when plucky British 
British soldiers and London-George Americans overcame a succession of adversaries who said little more than Achtung or Gott in Himmel and the occasional Ai! Um, so it appears that these national stereotypes and derogatory languages have now been banned um, for the more nuanced and compassionate depictions of wartime life. Now, more recent editions cover, for example, the story of Stanislav Kowalski, who was a Polish soldier who found himself in Britain after the Second World War, as a lot of Polish um, soldiers and sailors did. Or the Japanese character who was treated very favourable, caught up in the same constraints of the war, but a well-meaning person all the same. Now, another way that the uh, they've developed uh, their uh, offerings is, is to feature self-contained editions set among events such as the Roman invasion of Britain, uh, the medieval period, the Spanish Civil War, and into the far, far future, all telling the stories from different perspectives. Now, war comics were once very, very popular with British schoolboys, including me, with titles by the going by the name of Warlord. Battle, the Victor, and Hotspur, and they sold hundreds of thousands of copies every week. Now, Commando was the last one standing, and for those of you wondering which was my favourite comic, it was the Victor. Oh, I'm going to ask you that. Yes, I, I really look forward to every Saturday because that's when the papers that, that came around with the with the Telegraph that my father read, and that and the Victor would come with it from the newsagent. Exciting, yes. Now, did you also <laughs> get the Beano and the Dandy? I did, yes. Those those were my stalwarts. Those were my earlier early ones. So the Beano was first, and then we moved on to the Dandy. Uh-huh. Yes, and then, okay. and then when, of course, when I felt as I was mature enough at the age of whatever it was, um, I then went on to the Victor. Oh, the war, yes. the war story. Yes, yes, yes. exactly. Yes. yes, I think I probably did the Beano and the Dandy, and then you go on to things like Jackie. Yes, Jackie, and I think there was another one my sisters used to have. It was called Diana, I think. Oh yes, yes. I used to and cut then, out yes. all the all the makeup advice, and I'd have That's these right, huge yes. folders. <laughs> <laughs> That's of course before they went on to uh, to, to what my, my my father certainly viewed as rather sort of suspicious magazine when they went on to the Cosmopolitan. Oh, oh no, that's grown up. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, that's definitely grown up. So of course I mentioned the Beano and the Dandy because of course there has been for quite a number of years now it's sort of like a changing of how um, how comics sort of talk about people. Mm. And uh, I remember we were talking last year, and I just thought I'd re-mention it again, that the Beano announced that Fatty, remember he was a member of the Bash Street Kids, and he's, he's changed his name now, he's now Freddy. And Spotty is now called Scotty. And even Desperate Dan, you know, the pie-gizzling yes, cowboy. Yeah, with, with, the, with the cow horns coming out the pie. Yes, that's right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so he's been forced to go on a diet He's and he's lost his cruel spurs. Oh, right. And his, sh- his six-shooter has been replaced by a water pistol. Oh, so, uh, yes, so there's, um, there's, there's changes in all sorts of comics. Well, the thing is as well, I mean, I must admit, because it was great. I mean, there was Lord Snooty. So I suppose has he has he been cold now? And then, of course, there was Plug, which presumably meant because he was really had so a face, yeah. well, Plug ugly. So probably he's been banished as well. And what about Nasher the dog? And, oh, heaven I think above. Nasher the dog can say, surely he can yeah, stay. I hope so. But I mean, I don't He might know. be muzzled. Yeah. <laughs> He's the wrong brand. He's the wrong. Type. No, he's probably he's probably become some sort of a, a something a doodle or something now, hasn't he? 
When he's really gorgeous. <laughs> yes, you can't seem to get normal dogs anymore. They have to be all sort of doodle, don't they? I mean, some uh, cockapoodle or cockadoodle or labradoodle. I think cockadoodle, they're all gorgeous. Or, or, or do indeed. Well, anyway, there we go. Now, this one, I think, is a great letter, which goes, um, you know, poke an eye, uh, poke a finger in the eye of, 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 of wokeism, which is a great letter spotted in the Times last week um, about English literature courses being closed at universities. Um, and it came from an English teacher at Latimer Upper School in London. And he writes that Frank McCourt gave perhaps the most robust defence of English literature courses when asked by his students why they should read Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. And and the the teacher said, you will read it for the same reasons why your parents wasted their money on your piano lessons, he replied. So you won't be a boring little, add your own expletives here, for the rest of your life. (laughs) Quite right too. Do you know, I just thought, thought about it. Do you think we could ask management to invest in a little bleep machine? Because I would like to have been able to say the words and go bleep, bleep, bleep. Oh, that's a good idea. I'll ask yeah. about that. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> Oh, you've got a frog in the throat. I have indeed. Excuse me. So I was saying at the top of the programme that I've had a busy week. And I've got to say I've been to the opera. I know. Oh, oh, you champagne socialist. Well, exactly. So there's this story, isn't there, in the press at the moment, which is a bit of a stupid story, about Angela Rayner, who uh, is being accused of being a champagne socialist Mm -hmm. because she goes to Glyndebourne. Why she can't enjoy uh, opera, I've no idea. But Mm. anyway, there was this book that was mentioned in in the paper called Noisy at the Wrong Times, which is an inspirational and colourful memoir of Michael Volp, who was the general manager of Opera Holland Park. Uh-huh. And I went to Opera Holland uh, Park this week, and oh, I've right. got to say it was absolutely fabulous. Uh, I mentioned this because it was a group of friends and it was a, a friend's son that was actually in the performance. Ooh, so that, right. that was the reason I went along. And uh, it was Xerxes by Handel, who doesn't like a bit of Handel. Yes. Um, and so at the backdrop to the romantic operatic story, there was this physical theatre group who performed as courtiers and they were tumbling and they were fire-eating oh. and just basically enlivening the whole of the stage in the most marvellous way. And it was just absolutely excellent. And if you haven't tried opera, then Holland Opera... Uh, Holland Park Opera might be a great introduction. You know that little bit in um, Pretty Woman where yes. she gets gets taken in a private jet to Italy? Oh, yes. And she's sat there in the opera and she's crying her eyes out. I'm always waiting for opera to be like that for me. I've not, I've not quite been moved yet in that way, but that's what I'm hoping for. But then I want to go, as, as it goes on in the film... Um, <laughs> When she when she was asked if she liked it, oh, she said yes. It almost peed my pants. <laughs> yeah, not quite that far. <laughs> okay, good. Just the just the crying big. Oh, anyway, right. <laughs> back to the book, which is how I'm sort of getting this story in here. Yes, yes, uh, weaving in the book element. Absolutely, yes, yes. yes. So Michael Volpe is the son of Italian immigrants and he and his brothers were raised by his mother on a council estate in West London before he attended a prestigious uh, state boarding school designed to give bright inner city boys the opportunity of a public school education. And the subtitle to the book is The Story of a Boy Who Didn't Know His Place. And and it's a vibrant, funny, inspiring story 
about the guy who's the general uh, general manager of uh, Opera Holland Park. And I yeah. recommend that. Yeah, that sounds very inspirational as well. Yes. So that sounds very interesting. Yes, I'm sure that um, um, being um, uh, the son of Italian immigrant, I suppose they were um, suffused, if you like, suffused, infused um, with, with opera, I'm sure. Oh, yes, yes that's, that's true. Actually, he, says, he yes. does say that. He says his dad yes. would listen to it. And in fact, when opera first came out as a medium, it mm. was for everybody. Well, that was the point. I was reading a very interesting article, which which was an extension of of um, of, of of the Glyndebourne story mm. and, and the so called Champagne Socialists. Um, uh, the and it was that very fact was that in fact opera, even in in Great Britain, was um, for um, for everybody and um, working class people um, would would go and and that's why operas were staged at certain times so that they could go and the prices were priced sensibly um, and it was uh, it was entered because it was entertainment. This yes, is before before it televisions. It yes. was before I mean, the only alternative would have been uh, presumably theatre and the music hall perhaps, um, but there wasn't television. Um, there certainly wasn't the internet or anything like that, and this was part and parcel of of, of um, entertainment. Which is why and, opera. Lots of operas are quite funny, aren't they? I mean, well, exactly. That's the whole point. And, they're rarely, yeah. they're rarely miserable. Some of them are, but uh, rarely. Never you know, you've got, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, uh, you know, if you've got, uh, if you've got um, um, Verdi, and so they knocked out good tunes, and they're very, you know, and and that's the way it goes. And you know. Um, Yes, exactly. It, 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 it was a medium for everybody. And I think the only reason why it's come out to be seen as being elitist is that, unfortunately, ticket prices, if you want to go to Covent Garden, are, are quite expensive. And I yes. suppose that's where, yeah. where it is. And, yeah. and, and that's, but then again, that can be said for theatre also. However, now we must move on because um, one of our listeners, Lucinda, um, has uh, uh, written in recently to recommend... Um, a latest book from her book club, which they picked, and they normally read fiction. But this time, uh, Lucinda said, the group decided upon non-fiction and read Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall. And it's a perfect uh, pick to understand the geopolitical context behind Putin's Russia and the Ukraine crisis. Now, Lucinda mentioned that what was really exciting about the choice was that usually their book club, I mean, once they've, they've talked, they've, the group uh, discusses the book for about 15 minutes or, or, or so before moving on to pressing other pressing topics that uh, are to be covered. But with this one, everybody was so enthused and engaged um, and all had discovered new ideas that they wanted to share that it was a fantastic discussion. In fact, they, they didn't manage to talk about anything else other, other than this book. So more nonfiction books, no doubt, will be be incorporated into Lucinda's book club in the future. Now, I have a short reading from this book for you, as it is such a good choice. Okay. Here we go. Russia is vast. It is vastest. Immense. It is six million square miles vast. Eleven time zones vast. It is the largest country in the world. Its forests, lakes, rivers, frozen tundra, steppe, Tiga and mountains are all vast. This size has long seeped into our collective consciousness. Wherever we are, there is Russia, perhaps to our east or west, to our north or south, but there is the Russian bear. It is no coincidence that the bear is the symbol of this immense size. There it sits, sometimes hibernating, sometimes growling, majestic but ferocious. 
Bear is a Russian word, but the Russians are also wary of calling this animal by its name, fearful of conjuring up its darker side. They call it Medved, the one who likes honey. At least 120,000 of these Medveds live in a country which bestrides Europe and Asia. To the west of the Ural Mountains is European Russia. To their east is Siberia, stretching all the way to the Bering Sea and the Pacific Ocean. Even in the 21st century, to cross it by train takes six days. Russia's leaders must look across these distances and differences and formulate policy accordingly. For several centuries now, they have looked in all directions, but concentrated mostly westward. When writers seek to get to the heart of the bear, they often use Winston Churchill's famous observation of Russia, made in 1939. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. But few go on to complete the sentence, which ends, but perhaps there is a key. That key is a Russian national interest. Seven years later, he used that key to unlock his version of the answer to the riddle, asserting, I am convinced that there is nothing they admire so much as strength, and there is nothing for which they have less respect than for weakness, especially military weakness. He could have been talking about the current Russian leadership, which, despite being now wrapped in a cloak of democracy, remains authoritarian in its nature, with national interest still at its core. Isn't it interesting to remember that this was published in 2016? Exactly. And, and yeah, exactly. So it was um, it was well before all of this uh, cropping up. Um, so it really is it was really worth knowing that, that you know, that it was quite prescient then. So we're talking all those years back and bingo, here it is. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. Coming up, we'll be exploring the summer reading recommendations from Chantal at the Little Bookshop in Cookham, and we'll also be looking at the Earth in Books. But I'm delighted to announce that the Henley Literary Festival has now made its first public uh, notification of the first tranche of authors that have been confirmed for the festival this year. So I've been chatting to Harriet Reed Ryan, the festival director, about this forthcoming event. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's a delight to have you here. Obviously, the Henry Literary Festival is one of the big events of the literary world in the Thames Valley. And you've just got a press release announcing the launch of this year's events. So tell me all about it. It's our 16th (laughs) event. It feels like our 15th, probably because of COVID. It's our 16th one. And it, yeah, I think it is one of our best lineups. I think we say that every year and I think that could be annoying but actually do you know what I think this year is is our broadest and we did discuss whether we sort of said that out loud because does that sound a bit boring but I think it's really important to be broad and I think we just cover absolutely everyone so to give you a kind of top line okay. we've got astronaut Tim Peake we've got ADCC frontman Brian Johnson the children's laureate as of yesterday who is no longer children's laureate because it was handed over Cressida Cow mm-hmm. uh, comedy icon Lenny Henry we've got Spice Girl Mel C wow. we've got the novelist Robert Harris Floella Benjamin and we've also got three very famous Henley 
Berkeley residents, as well as some other local ones. But Mary Berry, Urban Welsh and Olivia Harrison are all going to be coming. So that and there's over 120 events. And that's just a just a handful of our top names. That's fantastic. Well, we will be getting you back and we'll be looking at each of these areas that you cover. But I think broad is good because broad means that it's going to appeal to just everybody, isn't it? Do you know, I really feel that. I remember when we do like sort of, you know, we go and talk to people, you know, on marketing days and stuff. And people are always, oh, no, I, I don't read books. And I was like, but there's something for everyone. Yeah. Like, that's the thing about festivals. It's actually, you know, it's less of the novelists than people would assume. And obviously, we've got brilliant novelists. We've got Patrick Gale, Sarah Women. We've got Bonnie Garmus, whose Lessons in Chemistry is oh, everywhere yes. at the moment. It's the yes. most talked about book. And she's coming with Nina. So, you know, we've, we do absolutely have the novelists. But we also just have people who you wouldn't expect. We've got historians. Lucy Worsley's coming, for example. And just some really interesting tales. Yeah. You know, and we've got Janina Ramirez coming with Femina, which is a sort of look at the Middle Ages through women. Brilliant. Um, yeah. You know, so there's some really, I genuinely believe there is something for everyone. Yeah. And also, I haven't even touched on the children's, you know, no. so there's stuff for kids as well. Yeah. So I always think actually that sometimes you can go to a literary festival so you don't need to buy the book and read it. You can just enjoy <laughs> buying the book. <laughs> publishers are listening we very much encourage the book. and you know some of them when it comes out that week they, the ticket is with the book and that's yeah. sort of you know if they're coming that week they're very very few events they can do and one of our commitments is to offer book and ticket but i think we've only got maybe 11 out of the 120 that are book and ticket the rest are children's prices start from six pounds we've got these brilliant events with lathwaites who are doing this thing called a wind down where mm, they're going to get some good. people to talk and that's free so you know there is something for everyone and that really is Fantastic. So, so when and where, of course, these are the most important things. Absolutely. The 1st to the 9th of October. We're across three venues in Henley, which has really changed post-COVID. We used to be sort of in seven and we're now very strictly in three of the Town Hall, the Kenton Theatre. And then we've got a very big, our biggest venue yet at Phyllis Court. Big venues. So if we are worried about COVID coming forward, we've got that flexibility for lots of space. Absolutely. And, you know, actually the town hall, we're going to be running as a hundred seat venue because you don't, you need one. There are some events that are just smaller events yes. and actually that room takes 250. So, you know, it's airy and it's spacious and, yeah. you know, the Kenton will be running as mid, mid one. I'm hoping, I think there was a lot of COVID fear last year. I'm hoping everyone from what I've been going to recently, I've sort of been sitting in packed out theatres again, which I this time last year, we definitely weren't. People just weren't ready. So I'm, I'm hoping people are feeling, also I think everyone's had it now, haven't they? Or they're having it at the moment, especially around here. Absolutely. So. Yeah. I mean, I think people are ready to, to ready to move on mm. in, in a considered way. Absolutely. And, and we'll really, you know, we're not packing them in like we used to. I think those days are gone, actually. I don't think people want to be packed in. Uh, to, you know, it used to be the closer and the more people we could get in, the better for the atmosphere, yes. not for us. Yeah. And I definitely think, yes, there is a turn away from that. So I think, yeah, they will absolutely be spacious. The marquee will have, we can fling the doors open and you can see the river from there. Yeah, so fantastic. it's all about making it feel safe and everyone to feel safe and masks can be worn if they want to be, and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, but absolutely, yeah. I feel like we've been very cautious with COVID and I think we will continue to support yeah. however I've, people want us to. Yeah, I think that's really good. Now, I was very conscious that last year you had a great lineup again, but of course seats sold out. And this year with this really amazing lineup that you've got there's obviously a concern that seats will go but you've got a friends facility haven't you tell, tell yeah, me about that 
we've got a friends membership, which has stayed the same price for five years. So it's not, it's £35 and you can sign up this week. It goes on sale to friends on the 11th of July and you basically get exclusive priority booking for a few days where you can book. Um, and also you get, we do special deals for friends. Some of our sponsors do special deals. So sometimes there's discounts and, you know, lots of treats for them. And it's just, it's a really good way to support the festival. The great thing about it is we open it from January and actually it funds the festival until, you know, along with sponsors and other things and savings but actually because for us there's a very limited time where we make money you know yes. <laughs> it's a very sort of you know we don't get any money in for months and so the friends are really vital in keeping the festival going i think the festival is so important to the cultural life of, of henley and this this whole region we, yeah, we need I think, to know I, I completely agree i think you know when sue my mum started it she sort of said that you know we're sort we're trying to you know, regatta is brilliant, festival is brilliant, but it's, you know, it's lovely to have some cultural element as well that is different. And actually the town have supported us so much. I mean, everyone is so supportive and we are now one of the top top five, which is quite remarkable considering how many there are. There's sort of one in every town. Yeah. So I feel really lucky that we've had so much support from people and from the publishers. And I do, you know, I think this lineup hopefully we'll have some sellouts next week. This is a bit I always worry that no one's going to buy any tickets. <laughs> so you're expecting sellouts right from the word go? are you oh i don't know no maybe i think oh i don't know i who knows i've got i've had a lot of interest in brian johnson from sort of friends and the brian johnson acdc thing is showing a lot of interest so right. i don't know if, i don't know if that will sell out olivia harrison doesn't really do much locals i think that people are really interested in that yeah so i don't know and you never know and also some of the small ones sell out because actually yes. there are only 100 seats and if it's somebody really interesting and if things change or, you know, something happens with their book or, you know, you never know what might happen. Yeah. Um, there's an amazing one called Lucy East Hope. I don't know if you've read her book called... No, um, I haven't. And she's an emergencies ex- expert and she deals with disaster emergencies and it sounds so fascinating and actually it's so funny. I booked her and then when her book came out, she was everywhere. Like, you know, just that sort of thing of it, because it's a really interesting story. So I think yes. all you need is something like that. And actually someone like that will sell out. So what we need you to do, if you don't mind, is to keep coming back and then sort of drip feeding what's happening yeah. over the festival, because there's just too much to take in all in all in one go, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. We would love to come on. So for this time for the launch, is there anything in particular you want to say in addition to what, what's been said? The, the, Tickets on sale to Friends of the Festival on the 11th of July. If you're listening for the first time and a friend feels a bit of a too too much of a commitment, if this is the first time you've heard about the festival, then general sale tickets go on the 18th of July, all on our website, which is henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Harriet, thank you. Right, so the Literary uh, Festival features 120 events for adults and children. will take place in Henley-on-Thames from the 1st to the 9th of October. And tickets go on sale to Friends on July the 11th and general sale on July the 18th. And you look at full details of all the programme from their website, which is www.henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk. The voice of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think beat comes next on the list. 
This is Turning Pages on River Radio, in case you've forgotten your book programme. Now, thank you for t- uh, tuning in. And if you've only just uh, joined us, we've missed you. However, never fear, you can listen again to our podcast uh, from whichever service you choose to use. Now, all you have to do is simply search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and listen whenever and wherever you wish. Now, uh, when you do, please do like our podcast. It really does help. And by that, it means it helps push us up in the rankings. Now, River Radio has an excellent choice of programmes for you to listen to, from music to talk shows to culture shows, such as Talking Pages, which is broadcasting, we broadcast throughout the week. So uh, please do make a weekly diary date with Turning Pages. Now, we broadcast every Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3 p.m. Absolutely. Yes, we do. So this week, our theme is going to be about the earth. But before we do that, I'm just following up on this idea of great summer reading recommendations. And I've been chatting to a local bookshop, Chantelle, from the little bookshop in Cookham, to discuss her favourites for the summer months. And in fact, it's quite interesting that some of the books that she's uh, she's chosen have been mentioned actually as authors that are coming along to the Henley Literary Festival. So let's listen to that conversation now. Chantelle, thanks so much for joining us today. We're going to be asking for your your summer reading recommendations, but before we do that, how are you? How are you getting on? Not too bad. Thank you for asking. I know you've had a busy time because you've had your own literary festival and you've had, of course, the Cookham Festival. So how, how did that all go and how you recovered? You've got other things happening Oh, yeah, it was brilliant, actually. They were both enormously successful. We get so much support from the community. It was it was brilliant. We did, I think, seven or eight events in May. So, yeah, it was, it was great. We have a closed signing with Helen Glover and Steve Backshall to promote their next book called Wildlings, which is all about getting your children into the great outdoors. Fantastic. I find copies available Friday afternoon. So, so what's, a, what's a closed signing session? What, what does that mean? Not open to the public, unfortunately, because Steve is travelling abroad all the time and he's due to fly the day after. He needs to sort of make sure he doesn't contact with anyone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We can't have him getting COVID before his his flight out there. So that's really exciting. So there you'll, you'll have signed signed editions available. That's, that's marvellous. Right. So we're, we're talking about summer reading. So do you think we change our reading habits for the summer or is it just that we have more time to read and so we can buy books? I'd say it's both, really, because people who don't necessarily have time to read when they go on holiday, obviously they have more time. And normally they want something, you know, a nice, easy, lighthearted read or maybe a page turner a bit of a thriller um and other people who, who who do read all the time anyway when they've got more time they'll obviously read more yes it's a nice buying opportunity isn't it a, a summer book so what are you going to recommend for us then i hope you've got quite a good selection there i know you always do completely different things so quite controversially i've got a few hardbacks to recommend i oh, know that's great with all the chaos of travel, I figure that a lot of people won't be actually going abroad for their holidays, who might be staying here. I so, think you're uh, right. It might not be completely out of the question. The first one I want to recommend is Godmersham Park by Jill Hornby. Obviously, Jill Hornby is a local girl. Yes, the sister of Nick Hornby. So she, she writes a lot about Jane Austen, so 
for any Jane Austen fans out there, this book is for you. Gomeshan Park doesn't focus necessarily on Jane Austen. It's more about one of her best friends, who's called Anne Sharp, who was the governess to her niece. It's about life and how she came to know Jane and her brother Henry and begin this enormous great big friendship that lasted all of Jane's lifetime and they were enormous correspondents. Anyone who just loves anything to do with Regency and Jane Austen, this, this is, book was written for you. And it's got a gorgeous cover, which is an embroidered picture of the, the house that the book is set in. But on the inside, I obviously had it really embroidered because on the inside you can see all the stitches. Oh, how lovely. Yes. And a book like that you want to have on your bookshelf, don't you, to keep? Very pretty, yeah. yeah. It's historical fiction. Historical it's not about- but it's about how she became friends with Jane Austen. The next one, completely different, uh, set in the 60s in America, is Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmas. And that's such a brilliant cover, isn't it? I've seen it with the, the pop of red, yellow, blue and green. Yes, it's a fantastic cover. I'm sure this would be made into a film or something. It's fantastic. It's debut, it's about a woman who is Elizabeth Sott. She is a chemist in the 1960s, working in a very misogynistic environment, and make you angry at times and it'll make you laugh out loud at times and there's a dog and the dog is great he's called 630 and uh, it's about the difficulties that she's facing and it also covers uh, she goes on to become tv chef and there's this sort of like national star and she sort of leads a feminist movement she doesn't want to be a tv chef at all she wants she just wants to work in a lab as a chemist and uh, but yeah everything goes sort of beyond her control it's also about rowing so for anything anyone interested in any of those things that book is for you and also it is just it's just fantastic i feel like everyone should read it great that's a good recommendation so there's the Reverend Richard Cole. Oh, I've got to say, I thoroughly enjoy it. What a brilliant recommendation. I think he is just lovely on the radio. So I can imagine his book is going to be perfect. It, I mean, it is. But fans of Cozies, Agatha Christie, Richard Osman, Robert Thorogood, any of those, you're going to love this. It's obviously it's the start of a series called the Canon Clement Mysteries. So I can't wait to see the next one. I'm getting desperately trying to get him in here to do a signing. Uh, so. uh, as soon as you do, I'll be the first one in the queue. And it went straight to the top of the bestsellers list and deservedly so, I think. He's a very popular character. We all adore him. He's so yeah. and it comes across in his writing as well, I think. For anyone who wants something a little bit more <laughs> literary then i would recommend the whalebone theater it's definitely i mean this could be a fantastic film as well the scenes in the book are fantastic so it's about uh, about a girl who's this very unusual character and she just wants to she just wants to be free and choose her own life and uh, it's about this whale that washes up on the beach about this little 12 year old and called christabel and just loved her and her Step parents are kind of distracted with their own lives and it's kind of left to get on with it. But so much happens. There is enormous war scenes. It covers a big period. I just, I loved it. The writing is amazing. It's definitely. Excellent. Yeah. Watch out. So if you like a good meaty book, that's the one to go for. If you want something a bit more lighthearted, I would recommend, and these are paperbacks now, I'm moving on to the paperbacks, Lucy Mangan's Are We Having Fun Yet? <laughs> so it's about this woman, Liz. She's married. She has two children. I think they're about five and seven-ish, if memory serves. And all she wants to do is have some peace and quiet and read a book <laughs> with her cat. But, you know, she has a husband and two children, so none of that's going to happen. And it's laugh out loud funny. It's, it's, I definitely recommend it for anyone who wants something to 
to enjoy while sat on the beach. This is perfect. I'm not too heavy, lighthearted, but it has got some poignant moments in it. It's very relatable about bringing up children. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah. So for all, all mums out there. Yes. Another one, Elizabeth Day. We're all such big fans of Elizabeth Day. Fantastic cover. It's an orange of a black magpie's feather on it. It's called Magpie. Um, and it's about uh, this couple, they're trying to have a baby and they have to have a lodger because, you know, it's expensive. And she just gets this funny feeling that there's something wrong and she's getting jealous and paranoid. And is it true? What's going on? Is it all in her head? And it's about gut feelings and she needs to find it out and it's gonna, it essentially could cost everything. So that's a good a psychological one. Ah, excellent. So it's sort of like a, a whodunit type thing. Not necessarily. It's more about what's going on in her head and is, is she being usurped or isn't she? Now, this one has already had a lot of attention online, but it is, it, it's a great book. It's much grittier than it looks. It's called Book Clovers by Emily Henry. Well, it does cover- not gritty at all, does it? It looks a bit fluffy, but that's just the style that they've, they've she had another book. You know, similar vein, but I mean, it's a great looking cover, it's very attractive, very eye catching. But anyway, it's about a literary agent and an editor, and what do we call the trope enemies to lovers type of trope? But her nemesis, and she gets away from it all, she leaves <laughs> to try and, like, you know, concentrate somewhere else. She gets to a small town, but of course, you know, he's there. <laughs> it's not like he's followed her there, but she just keeps bumping into him all the time, and oh, it's very good, great tension. Brilliant summer read. I would definitely recommend that for any romance lovers ever. Excellent. I also think book lovers like books about books and people involved in books, don't they? So booksellers and agents and authors, they're always a really good genre. Writers, that's the world they know as well. So yes. they end up that quite a lot. Um, another one uh, for any fans of the royal family is The Duchess, just come out on paperback by Wendy Holden. Oh, and great. Them. So, yes, it's bit of a page turner but light-hearted well i mean it wasn't light-hearted for them but for us reading about it <laughs> today then it's a quite captivating well-written nice interesting read keep your attention and it did really well in hardback didn't it so obviously in the paperback it'll it'll do brilliantly success of her first one as well in this vein which is called the governess ah, which yes. is about the governess to a famously wrote a book about them so it's a bit salacious a bit gossipy but who doesn't like a bit of scandal Especially if you do like a bit of scandal to share as well. When we're sitting here having our little afternoon drink, we like we like we like to gossip about what we've just read. Don't we? So uh, next, we have got Sunset by Jessie Cave. It's one about sisters. They always go on holiday together. They're grown-up sisters, and they have like a budget holiday where they bicker, laugh, fight, and make up. Just sounds very you know. <laughs> and if you have siblings, I'm sure you can all relate. And. But something happens on this holiday and it changes everything. And I can't tell you what, because that would be an enormous spoiler. But it's called Sunset and it's by Jesse Cave. Great. And then her last one. I love this one so much. <laughs> Again, so I'm a little bit more literary. So you're saving uh, the best to last. But they're all good. This is called Still Life by Sarah Winman. It's set in 1944 in Italy, and it's completely transported. If you can't go away, I recommend this. It will make you feel like you are there. And oh, it's got brilliant. this who's a 64-year-old art historian, and I just adored her. But it's lovely, emotive. I whiz through it. It's quite. It's not too small, so it's you know it will last you longer than a day or two if you have you know hours yeah. and hours. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend that one. Great writing. Loved it. Still Life by Sarah Winman. 
So if you're staying in the, in the UK but feel you really ought to have been abroad, then that's, yeah. that's the one to get. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's all my recommendations. Well, that's a great choice. Thank you so much, Chantal. I look forward to reading some of them. That's brilliant. Well, um, the recommended books um, by Chantel for the summer reading include, here's the lineup, get your pen and paper, uh, Helen Glover and Stephen uh, Baxall, um, their Wildings, How to Raise Your Family in Nature, published by Two Roads. Godmersham Park by Jill Hornby, <laughs> published by Century. Lessons in Chemistry by uh, Bonnie Grams, published by Penguin. Richard Cole, Murder Before Evensong, published by Weidenfeld Nicholson. Whalebone Theatre by Joanna Quinn, published by Fig Tree. Lucy Mangan, Are We Having Fun, published by Souvenir Press. Magpie, written by Elizabeth Day, published by Fourth Estate. Uh, Emily Henry's Book Lovers, published by Penguin. Um, and then we have The Duchess, written by Wendy Holden, published by Welbeck. Sunset by Jessie Cave, published by Welbeck. And we have Still Life uh, by Sarah Win- uh, Winham, uh, sorry, Winman, I beg your pardon, published by Fourth Estate. Great, uh, great list there. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Chantelle. Indeed. And now for the theme of the week, it's going to be about Earth and books that celebrate or focus on this topic. And Julian, of course, what have you picked? Well, I've chosen uh, probably one that is, 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 is quite topical, or not topical, but um, springs to mind, is Journey to the Centre of Earth. It by, absolutely uh, did Jules spring Verne. to mind, didn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was first published in English in 1871, and um, um, Jules Verne, as we would call him, or Jules Verne, probably in French, was a prolific author who wrote an astonishing 59 novels in his lifetime, over 59 novels, um, usually to rate of one a year, yet perhaps he is no most mostly for the um, for only three novels, which happen to be the three great adventure stories, namely Journey to the Centre of the Earth, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and Around the World in 80 Days. And, and what now, three you... novels? I mean, they're all yeah. of them amazing. Corkers, aren't they? Yeah, now, absolute corkers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, Jules Verne wrote uh, with an international audience of mine. For example, um, his protagonists were generally not French. In the case of Around the World in 80 Days, his hero is an Englishman. And in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, his hero, or should I say anti-hero, Captain Nemo, is Indian. And in our book today, Journey in the Centre to the Centre of the Earth, our leading man is, is German, Professor Otto Lindenbrock. Now, our... Um, adventure opens in Hamburg in 1863 at the home of the professor who, with his nephew Axel, deciphers a coded note in a runic manuscript of an Icelandic saga written by a 16th century alchemist by the name of Arna Saknussem. Now, the note um, dares the traveller to go down into the crater of Snaefell's Yukul just before the calends of July, which leads to the centre of the earth. And by way of encouragement, the note ends with, I've done so, Arna Saknusem. Now, the professor immediately departs for Iceland by way of Kiel in Copenhagen, dragging a reluctant axle along with him. And in Reykjavik, they engage the services of an Icelandic eider duck hunter by the name of Hans Bjelka as their guide. And I have a little reading yet for you. Journey to the Centre of the Earth, Chapter 14. We continue our descent. Now, Harry, cried the professor in an enthusiastic tone of voice, we are truly about to take our first step into the interior of the earth, never before visited by man since the first creation of the world. You may consider, therefore, that at this precise moment our travels really commence. 
As my uncle made this remark, he took in one hand the Rumkorf coil apparatus which hung round his neck, and with the other he put the electric current into communication with the worm of the lantern, and a bright light at once illumined the dark and gloomy tunnel. The effect was magical. Hans, who carried the second apparatus, had it also put into operation. This ingenious application of electricity to practical purpose enabled us to move along by the light of an artificial day, amid even the flow of the most inflammable and combustible gases. Forward! cried my uncle. Each took up his burden. Hans went first, my uncle followed, and I, going third, we entered the sombre gallery. Just as we were to engulf ourselves in this dismal passage, I lifted up my head and through the tube-like shaft saw the Iceland sky I was never to see again. Was it the last I should ever see of any sky? The stream of lava flowing from the bowels of the earth in 1219 had forced itself a passage through the tunnel. It lined the whole of the inside with its thick and brilliant coating. The electric light added very greatly to the brilliancy of the effect. The great difficulty of our journey now began. How were we to prevent ourselves from slipping down the steeply inclined plain? Happily, some cracks, abrasions of soil and other irregularities served the place of steps, and we descended slowly, allowing our heavy luggage to slip on before at the end of a long cord. But that which served as steps under our feet became in other places stalactites. The lava, very porous in certain places, took the form of little round blisters, Crystals of opaque quartz, adorned with limpid drops of natural gas suspended to the roof like lustres, seemed to take fire as we passed beneath them. One would have fancied that the genii of romance were illuminating their underground palaces to receive the sons of men. Magnificent! Glorious! I cried in a moment of involuntary enthusiasm. What a spectacle, uncle! Do you not admire these variegated shades of lava which run through a whole series of colours, from reddish-brown to pale yellow, by the most insensible degrees? And these crystals, they appear like luminous globes. You are beginning to see the charm of travel, Master Harry, cried my uncle. Wait a bit until we advance further. What we have as yet discovered is nothing. Onwards, my boy, onwards! So as we've heard, um, they've arrived and they're, they're now on their uh, descent. They descended to the bowels of the earth and the start of their adventure. Now, they um, they follow the course of an underground river, which they uh, name um, Hansbach in honour of their guide. Uh, and they um, when they reach this underground world. Now, they build a raft of petrified wood and they set sail, um, uh, encountering prehistoric fish and giant marine reptiles from the age of the dinosaurs. Now, storm sweeps them on to the shores of an enormous fossil graveyard and on inspection, of the remains, they find bones of a pterodactyl, a megatherium, and if you don't know what a megatherium is, it, no, was, a I giant, it was a giant ground sloth. Ah, okay. Uh, and also the remains of a mastodon, along with a completely preserved body of a man. Now, further astonishing discoveries are made when the professor and Axel venture into a forest of primitive vegetation from the tertiary period and <clears throat> are amazed to stumble across a prehistoric humanoid over 12 feet tall watching over a herd of mastodons. Now, leaving the lofty herder in his herd, they slip away and rejoin the hands to continue their underground sea voyage. 
Now, if you want to know the rest of the adventure, how it turned out, and how the trio ended up being spat out of a volcano... Oh, now that's a spoiler alert, isn't it? Well, it could be, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, but how they how they came to, oh red how they came to land in Stromboli in Sicily then <laughs> you need to read the book now of course as you may imagine Verne's works are absolutely ideal for film and Journey to the Center of the Earth is no exception now a version of it was made uh, in 1959 starring James Mason as the professor however as with many a film um, the scriptwriters took great liberties with the author's original work and they ended up changing the professor from a german to a scot and giving him a knighthood to boot mm-hmm. axel becomes alec and is no longer the professor's nephew but an admiring student of the professor's and several characters that don't feature in Verne's original work at all make an appearance in the film including a dastardly scheming professor by the name of yetterbury now, so that brings us back to the book. Keep to the original source, listeners, and you can't go wrong. Now, the uh, because it's out of copyright, Journey to the Centre of the Earth is available in several editions, uh, including Penguin Books and Wordsworth Classics, among others. Yes. So go and talk to your local bookshop uh, and see what edition they've got, and you'll thoroughly enjoy that adventure. Fabulous. Did you know that Jules Verne was the second most uh, translated author? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So who do you think? So if he's the second most translated author, who do you think is the first and the third? Oh, now. Um, would Victor Hugo be one? No, no, don't think oh. French. Both oh, of the don't others think are French. British, yeah. The other two are oh, British. Oh, I see. So, so, sorry. So he was French in British. So, so we're talking most about. Most translated English. in the world. So in just the world. most translated. Charles Dickens? No, it was Shakespeare was number one. Oh, right. And course. number three, Agatha Christie. Well, gosh. There you are. Yes. Now, this was that uh, that bit of research. It's a little bit old. It's sort of 50 years old. So, obviously, I would imagine that it's totally changed now. Um, well, yes, probably J.K. Rowling's replaced Shakespeare. <laughs> oh, no, let's hope not. Let's hope Shakespeare is still there. I'm sure he is. I'm yes. sure he is. I'm, I'm yes. voting for him anyway. Mind you, it'd be very interesting to um, to uh, see a play in Iceland, Shakespeare play in Icelandic, wouldn't it? Oh. Mm. Well, but of course, Hamlet Hamlet's and Danish was an ideal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm really glad that you were talking about mechatheriums and pterodactyls and mastodons because my book is called Other Lands, A World in the Making by mm-hmm. Dr. Thomas Halliday. And um, it's about our... Um, our our history, the Earth's history. Mm -hmm. So this is a Sunday Times bestselling book. It was published earlier this year. And when it was published, people were saying, I think this is going to be, you know, Mm. this is January, going to be my best book of the year. And halfway through the year, those same reviewers are saying, it's still up there. It's still absolutely a solid Brilliant, fantastic book. So I can't recommend it more. Thomas Halliday is an Associate Research Fellow at the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Birmingham. He got his PhD, his PhD won the uh, 
uh, Linnean uh, Society Medal for the best thesis in biological sciences in the UK. And he's also won uh, the Hugh Miller Writing Competition. So he knows what he's talking about and he can write. So that's just a perfect combination. And the book takes us on the tour of landscapes and flora and fauna of our distant of the earth's distant past transporting us to 16 rich fossil sites traveling back in time so each chapter is a snapshot of a particular place at a particular time so we scroll back over the sections through the cretaceous the jurassic the triassic the coponiferous the silurian and ending up in something called the edic which is some 550 million years ago Um, and of course along the way we encounter extinction and in fact five mass extinction events which is which is amazing and uh, of course there is an afterward to uh, finish the book off which talks about how we can look at the planet's future by understanding more about its past which obviously that's that's the important thing for us. Mm. So it's beautifully written. It's the top, the the, um, the prose is practically alive, and just a few um, sort of ideas. He talks about an air that is skin tightening, tighteningly cold, and ground that is pungent with relief, and Scottish hillsides clad with musky backed cloisters. You can really see mm. those uh, those images that he's uh, that he's projecting. Uh, absolutely, absolutely brilliant um, language that he's uh, yeah, he's using there. Um, so the um, oh, where are we? So uh, did you know that um, red green colour blindness is because of our ancestors? Are you red green colour blind? Um, no. Uh, so. so my my husband is. It seems to be fairly male, I think, but. Uh, in the Cretaceous period, 125 million years ago, we had nocturnal mammals who abandoned uh, the majority of their colour receptors in their eyes, leaving them to detect only red. So, of course, when mammals became day-living creatures again, they had to readapt their eyes to be sensitive to green. And that leaves us with the vulnerability in 8% of humans today are colour blind because of this mm. ancestral journey into the night. Gosh. And uh, it also, which I just adore, is the fact that it makes connections across time. So mammoths survived on an Arctic island until four and a half thousand years ago, which was at the same time that uh, Gilgamesh, which is our first tale, the oldest surviving written story, that's mm. the same time that that was set, ah. um, two, two and a <clears throat> half thousand BC which I just think is is fabulous. Yes. Anyway, is it climate change? Is it the pandemic? But we seemed to be needing to look at how extraordinary our world is at the moment. And so the message of this book is that whatever happens with climate, climatic changes, these things happen all the time, but life persists. And um, if the next asteroid did come along, life will continue, perhaps just not with us. Oh, well, that's a sobering thought. It is indeed. (laughs) Right. So it's the end of the show. 
Gosh, okay, right. So it's on to our one more... Uh, one, no, uh, books one we've more. been recommending today. Yes, which it is. And and so we have um, Noisy at the Wrong Times by Michael Volper, published by Two Roads. Uh, Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, published <clears throat> uh, the by... The Last... Ha- Pardon? Oh, sorry, I beg, I beg That's your pardon. Okay. The Last House by Catriona Ward. And Other Lands by Journeys in Earth's Extinct Ecosystems by Thomas Halliday. And, and that's by publishing Random House, I think. Yeah. Yes. And of course, Jules Verne. Uh, yes. Journey indeed. to the Centre of the Earth. So thank you very much indeed for listening to Turning Pages today. And do tell your friends if you've enjoyed it. And we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. So do tell us and let mm. us know. And uh, listening to radio, uh, River Radio and Turning Pages have never been easier, especially as we're broadcasting on DAB. So you can just listen to River Radio on almost any internet connected device. And don't forget, we're available on a podcast. You just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast and you can listen to us at any time. So thank you very much for joining us. Bye bye. Bye bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. That stands out from the crowd. 